Welcome back to Wokademia, uh, my podcast on the uh, changes in academia that we've observed. I'm, I'm very happy to have Dr. Gad Sad uh, here. He's been with us for a few days. Um, he's given a, a couple of very interesting talks uh, through the Salem Center that are available on our YouTube channel. He's a professor of marketing at Concordia University uh, and a behavioral scientist with an expertise in evolutionary psychology. Um, uh, he also has his own much more popular podcast called <laughs> The Sad Truth and is two the author yeah, with two A's, two A's. If, you, if you need to be uh, searching and watch that autocorrect on that one. Um, uh, and he's the author of several books, including for our pur purposes, the most interesting of uh, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. He's also uh, had an opportunity while he was down here to swing by Joe Rogan's podcast. So... Um, we're uh, making podcast history here with the single greatest drop in podcast significance <laughs> for a single guest in a single day. So we're very excited about that little uh, moment. Um, and uh, so with that, I want to jump into this idea of the idea pathogen, the parasitic ideas, and then maybe get into how that is affecting universities and what that means for universities and what we can maybe do about that. So first, thank you for having me. Uh, Self-deprecation, as you just engaged in, is a costly signal. It <laughs> takes someone who is highly confident to engage in self-deprecation. So I only take it to mean that you're a super confident guy. <laughs> so th uh, thank you for having me. Uh, so the way that I uh, thought about writing this book is that I, I noticed that for the past almost 30 years that I've been a professor, there, there's been this constant attack on reason, on logic, on science, on the scientific method, on common sense. And so I always tell people that I faced two great wars in my life. The first one, of course, growing up in Lebanon and the Civil War. The second one has been the war on reason throughout academia. And so what the book basically does is it argues that there's a set of idea pathogens, not unlike how you would have an actual parasite that causes an organism to behave maladaptively, humans can be parasitized by bad ideas that can then alter our behavior to our detriment. And so examples of idea pathogens, postmodernism, which basically argues that there are no universal truths, everything is uh, constrained by subjectivity. Social constructivism is another idea pathogen. We're all born indistinguishable with no biological imperatives that shape us other than subsequent socialization. Uh, Biophobia is another idea pathogen, the idea that uh, human affairs cannot be uh, caused by biological forces. Radical feminism is another one. And so what I argue is that each of these parasitic ideas, once you put them all together in this melange of idea pathogens, serves as an attack on our edifices of reason. So the scientific method becomes white supremacy, mathematics becomes racist, and so on and so forth. So the book is about where these idea pathogens come from, and then how we could inoculate ourselves against these bad ideas. So I, there's one aspect of this that really stuck with me when I was reading the book, and this is the, the idea of the neuroparasite that changes behavior. And it seems, you know, what I've noticed uh, when you're dealing with the people who've sort of fully embraced that, that sort of laundry list of interrelated concepts is you do observe this behavior where they seem to cast aside you know, the mission of the university, for example, and focus so much on kind of reproducing that own set of ideas. Right. Is that part of what got this uh, this 
I, I don't even want to say analogy because I think it may be actually right. like it's, a, it's a, literal. A, yeah, you know, there, there may be an FR, fMRI yeah. study that could show the the it, actual presence. It's so funny that you say fMRI because I, I when I was at one point I was talking about ostrich parasitic syndrome, which is in chapter six. I talk about how people who want to deny reality that is as obvious as gravity they suffer from ostrich parasitic syndrome and i had a graduate student who who wanted to work with me on identifying the uh, neuronal signature of ostrich parasitic syndrome so oh, so literally at that God. point that would be a uh, so we, we haven't yet pursued it but i think it would be really cool you're exactly right look so one of one of the manifestations of a neuroparasite is that there is a antagonism between the host and the parasite. The parasite wants the host to do things that might be detrimental to the host, but that serves the reproductive interest of the parasite, right? So how would we see this, say, in the human context? Well, if, for example, you have a group of people who are in the LGBT community who then join a group called Queers for Palestine, that would be an example of a parasitic idea that is leading you down to the abyss of infinite lunacy because if you are a person who self-identifies as queer you're part of the lgbtq community would you want to be putting in your capital for with queers for tel aviv where tel aviv is one of the most uh hospitable places for the lgbt community or do you want to be on the side of gaza where they throw you off buildings but that's what happens when you are parasitized by these dreadful ideas you be it, you do things that are detrimental to your interests. So Queers for Palestine is a perfect manifestation of what happens to someone when they are parasitized by one of these idea pathogens. And, but that would suggest there's some self-limiting process in here. Like I think you use the analogy of the, um, the parasitic wasp yeah. that stings the spider, and then the spider is eaten from inside, yeah. in and that allows, yeah. uh, that allows the, the wasps... Offspring. spread yeah. um but then the uh that that spider doesn't it's sort of done yeah uh and i you know when i look around at a university yeah you, you see the people become parasitized in your terminology and they become i mean i would say that once you've crossed into that boundary you're fairly useless as an academic right you, <laughs> you once you've rejected Except reason if, and evidence if, if the ecosystem yeah. and that's what i want to get like it seems like we've built structures so that the people, you know, that we're, we're sort of keeping that desiccated tarantula on life support yeah. <laughs> to, so it can continue to spread because we create entire departments yeah. that reject this. And it, it almost seems like... You, that you, reject reason. That reject reason yeah. just so that these these people who have kind of consumed these can continue to grow yeah. and thrive. It's almost like the institution is working the to game the benefit is rigged. of the, the game parasite. Is absolutely, um, absolutely. And, what what matters is the re reproduction, if you'd like, of the bad ideas. Mm -hmm. And so to use another type of analogy, the, the mimetic analogy, right? You know, it you are simply the, the replicator of the memes. So you are inc inconsequential. What matters is that the meme survives, to mm -hmm. use, you know, Richard Dawkins' term. So the parasitic idea is all that matters. That's what needs to be reproduced. To the extent that the university ecosystem then offers me a fertile environment to allow for the propagation and flourishing of the idea pathogens, then we're doing a good job if mm -hmm. I am part of the, you know, the blue-haired Taliban. So... It's grotesque, right? Because I, I started seeing it first in my career be, before I got into the broader culture war. I saw it in my scientific work where I was trying to 
introduce evolutionary thinking to the business school and the uh, the the type of religious fervor dogmatic you know resistance that i faced was already hinting at a departure from intellectual curiosity intellectual humility the scientific method because i would i would challenge my colleagues and say well, what do you think happens to a consumer when he or she is engaging in consumatory acts? They step outside of their biology, their hormones no longer matter, their sugar levels, if they drop or increase, don't affect their decision-making. What is the alternative to what I'm saying? Why is it so contentious? But it was really very much la la la, I don't wanna hear it. And so that's when I first saw something is going on here where supposedly committed academics who are committed to the scientific method are anything but that. It's, it's, it's that, then that's it's that, that that pulling back seems like it almost would have to be detectable on an fMRI machine, yeah, right? Exactly. Like this sort of, I'm, you know, here we debate, we debate over in this little area of, you know, things that nobody cares about from a social or political perspective. But the moment we cross into that, the the pathogen sort of, it stops it. And yeah, it, exactly. And and then, and it, and then you just become the proselytizer and the spreading. Now, is this, does this seem like something that is a, is this a unique problem of our current educational system? Or if we went back historically, are these just things that will always crop right. up? Do we have, that's yes. where. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so I think the capacity for the human mind to be parasitized is a time immemorial invariant property of the brain's architecture. <laughs> you know, we are capable of being parasitized. What is unique about the current situation is that there is a unique set of idea paths. So for example, you could have had viruses that have existed forever, but then a particular strain comes along, an avian flu that is particularly virulent. So even though viruses have been co-evolving with us forever, there is a unique reality to today. And so, so for example, take Lysenkoism, which mm -hmm. I briefly mentioned in the book. Lysenkoism is a, a genetic theory that was espoused in the Soviet Union that was consistent consistent with Marxist philosophy. And the idea was that Lysenko thought that the Mendelian genetics would be inconsistent with Marxist philosophy. And so therefore his ideolog political ideological beliefs were more important than the scientific truth. Well, there was a downstream consequence of that. Millions of people died of famine. And so that Lysenkoism is not a manifestation of the current idea pathogens I'm speaking of, but it's a manifestation of the same reality, which is brains, human brains can be parasitized, can be taken over by dreadful ideas that appear to be alluring. So the the capacity for us to be parasitized is invariant across time and place, but there is a unique problem with the current idea pathogens. So do you think that that susceptibility relates, I, I, I got slightly obsessed with this book, uh, The Secret of Our Success by Heinrich, uh, right. this idea that you know we function through this imitative process right. is, is it, you know, we, we go around, we look at who's successful and we ape their beliefs and things. Is, is that something that makes us particularly susceptible or is that getting a little too conjectural? Well, no, I mean, in the sense that if, if I'm a young university student and I wish to be accepted among my peer group, uh, you know, when I'm 70, maybe I care less about being accepted, but as I'm going through life's trajectory, and I am a teenager or a young adult, it really matters for me to be accepted amongst my peers. And I find out that they're all for queers for Palestine and uh, Israel is an apartheid genocidal state. 
maybe I don't have the strong personhood to be able to say, wait a minute, I don't agree that Israel. So therefore, I start imitating these mm -hmm. beliefs that seem to be accept accepted by everybody around me precisely because I don't have the intellectual courage or testicular fortitude to be able to say, I disagree with this. And I think we need to create room for people to manifest some courage, some uh, idiosyncrasies that allow them to say, you know, I don't have to agree with everything that you say for you to be my friend. And is your sense that maybe, is this something that is just cropped up like a couple of kooky people in France started promoting these ideas and they had this evolutionary advantage and they spread? Or do you sense that, the, and this is something I struggle with, is, is this, was there a design where we're going to, you know, people, someone understood modernism in the modern society <laughs> right. enough to like exploit these things? I can't, I can't put I my don't, finger I, on that. So I'm speculating here, but yeah. I don't think there was kind of a conspiratorial top-down program to dismantle the West. I think it was in part kind of organic. There is a set of really, really bad ideas, all of which have flourished in a particular time and space, and then it's causing us the kind of problems that we're seeing. So in the case of the postmodernists, you mentioned the mm -hmm. French, Jacques Derrida, Jacques Lacan, Michel Foucault, uh, I think, I'm speculating, although I have some evidence that suggests that I might be on the right track, I think that deep down in the, in the deep recesses of their mind, they knew that they were BSing. But using an evolutionary mechanism, I can gain in social status if I get up in front of a Princeton crowd and start talking with obscure postmodernist gibberish and everybody fawns at the full profundity that I'm you know, uh, espousing. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I can get the really pretty girls on campus. Well, Michel Foucault might have been the pretty guys, but... Uh, so and it might have been on a different on type a different, of campus. On a different type of campus, exactly. But the reality is that that conferred upon them a certain type of prestige because they just seemed profound in the completely nonsensical gibberish that they were espousing. And so I don't get the feeling that there was a grand conspiracy. I think it was the... The, the historical accidents of, of our time that cause all of these confluence of idea pathogens to congregate together. Right. And so that, and then that, but then we, dereferencing one level, what was it that meant, made something like Princeton and places that should have had an immune system to this? Like we should have been yeah. able to say, this is nonsense. I mean, even not that, you know, it's been a while since Sokol came out and pretty much yeah, yeah, yeah. empirically demonstrated that this was nonsense. And yet there was no removal. Is, is there some like deeper breakdown that left us susceptible to the infection? Or it, it, was it, is it just such a powerful yeah. infection? So, I, so here I'm going to um, refer to a really incredible phenomenon in psychology called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is the mechanism by which we attribute the cause of something. So for example, did I do poorly on the exam because I didn't study enough or that I do poorly on the exam because Professor Lowry is an ass and he gave us too hard an exam. He doesn't know how to lecture, right? So if it's all probably true, but go ahead. <laughs> Again, self-deprecation. <laughs> so so uh, of course, what most people do is they attribute successes internally and failures out uh, externally. So if I did very well on the exam, it's because of course I'm smart. And if I did poorly on the exam, it's because Professor Lowry is an idiot, right? Now let's apply this fundamental attribution principle uh, to postmodernists. Uh, when a guy gets up, Jacques Lacan gets up in front of the Princeton crowd and starts you know, espousing all sorts of nonsensical gibberish, the audience member 
has one of two attribution styles that he or she can can commit to. I could either say, I'm not understanding Dr. Lacan because he's just so profound. He's on an intellectually unattainable level. So if I'm not understanding him, it's because I'm a moron. Or I could say the other possibility, which is he's full of BS and he's espousing nonsense. Well, of course, most people are probably going to take the former. And so that itself becomes a, a trick car, you know, a sleight of hand thing, whereby by simply getting up and espousing all sorts of faux profundity, that intoxicates the people into thinking that I'm saying something quite important. So let me uh, let me draw a slightly different uh, analogy, which I also briefly discuss in the in the book. Uh, if I take an fMRI type of study, and in the study, I put a picture of the brain with all the different colors in the from the mm -hmm. fMRI, or I take the exact same study and I don't put that picture, people will use the peripheral cue of the, the photo to say, oh, that paper is really sciencey. That one is less so. So simply by taking a completely irrelevant cue, in this mm -hmm. case, demonstrating that it's sciencey, it can intoxicate you into thinking this paper is, is better than this one, even though they're identical. So this is in marketing, it's called packaging. The way mm -hmm. I package thing makes me either like it or not. So this is what I think is happening with postmodernism. So I think this gives a really good segue into something that is, is something that you, you talk about a fair amount too. But how do we, how would we go back and construct a system that wouldn't be subjected to Derrida getting up there and you know right. tricking everyone into thinking he's brilliant? What, what's, the, what's the process of thinking that would make us not fall for this because even if this goes away it seems like you know if the system is still in right. place that allows folk profundity to win out some other really dumb thing is going to happen right. so how do we how do we go back and change how we consume this type of information so there are there are so in chapter seven of the perfect mind i talk about how to seek truth i begin first with one type of truth analytic truth so axiomatic truth so for example, there's a transitivity axiom. Let me just break it down for a second. It comes from rational choice. If I prefer car A to car B, mm -hmm. and I prefer car B to car C, it must be that I prefer car A to car C. If I violate that, then I'm being intransitive. So in some cases, which are actually simpler because they're very constrained, they're axiomatically constrained, I could tell you what is true or not based on the rules of that game. Now, when it comes to the fuzzy world that we live in, where things are not cannot be established analytically, I argue that we we need we need to build what are called nomological networks of cumulative evidence, and so this requires a bit of explanation. So bear with me. So suppose that I want to prove to you that uh, toy preferences uh, are sex specific because of some biological reason. How can I go about doing that? And by the way, in my saying that. I'm going against all of the literature from social sciences mm -hmm. that says that toy preferences are socially constructed. They're not due to biology. So then I would put on my hat of the guy who's trying to build that network and say, what would be the data that I would need to amass so that the most hostile of the detractors would come around to my position? Well, I can get data from across cultures, from across uh, time periods, from across animals, from across uh, disciplines all of which triangulate into demonstrating that toy preferences have a sex specificity that is invariant across all of these different scenarios. So 
the the difficulty with this approach that I'm talking about, number one is it takes effort for the one to build it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it takes cognitive commitment. Most people are cognitive misers. They're intellectually lazy. So if a Barack Obama tells me that Islam is peace, he's the president, I simply accept it. I don't sit there and build the nomological network for Islam. But if you want to get at the truth, you can't be a cognitive miser. You have to be able to do the heavy lifting. The other challenge in my approach is that if Richard is someone who is dead set against my ideas and I want to build the nomological network, he simply has to have enough intellectual honesty to at least allow me to show him the nomological network. If he just goes, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, then I'm dead because I there's nothing that can mm -hmm. penetrate that. So as long as you make a commitment to meet me someplace where we can have that discussion, I'm going to flip you. Okay. So they, this was actually one of the chapters that I really liked in the book in the sense that like the, the, what, what you describe there, it's, you know, it's almost recognizable as how people that you respect intellectually do things. But I never, yeah, I, but I never thought in terms of, oh, there's a name yeah, for yeah. that process and there's a formal way to think about that process. Exactly. And so if we could sort of formalize that it almost seems like you need to start teaching people that exactly very early. And, right? and you, you, you don't learn to think by, you know, doing other things. You learn to think by, oh no, this is how you should learn. And to that's think. why and I that that's why I'm so excited about this epistemological tool because you know, for example, when you go to graduate school, you learn how to do a literature review. Mm -hmm. Well, a literature review is very narrow. It's basically okay if I'm studying the relationship between uh, a fear and how memorable an ad is. I'll start looking at every possible study that's been done in the literature, specifically tying those two constructs to one another. It's very narrow. I could do a meta-analysis, which is a statistical aggregation of all of the studies that have been done within that small space. And a nomological network is very different. It's saying, can I go to classics? Can I go to neuroscience? Can I go? So I'm putting a much broader, what's all of the possible available knowledge that might exist that could support my argument. So it's it's not a literature review. It's this kind of orgiastic triangulation of knowledge. It's a, literature reviews and meta studies would almost be inputs into this into building the, this into the network. boxes exactly. So this may be getting a little too inside baseball, but historic you know over time the idea of writing books in academic settings has become much less popular and we've gone more towards very specific papers. Like I've never written a book. I've never considered writing a book, but it seems like, you know, that process, it, it, you know, the, the rewards for the narrowness is almost pushing us oh. away from this process of building these networks of 100%. knowledge. So I, so I briefly mentioned the issue of interdisciplinarity in, in mm -hmm. some of my current, but in my next book that I'm currently writing, I have a whole chapter on variety seeking that, you know, variety is the spice of life. And I talk about different types of variety, food variety, sexual variety, intellectual variety seeking. And that I argue that, you know, m most of the important scientific breakthroughs happen at the intersection of interdisciplinary things, right? Ne never mind the nomological networks that I'm proposing, mm -hmm. right? Universities constantly espouse the, the position that they're interdisciplinary, but they're anything but mm -hmm. that. So I'll give you a, a experience from my, you know, my own case. I tried to institute at my university an interdisciplinary evolutionary studies program, which was going to be the first Canadian model of something that 
David Sloan Wilson, who's an evolutionary biologist at SUNY Binghamton has created, which is what? Evolutionary theory is something that could be applied across all you know, human domains, whether you're a political science student or economics or architecture or business or medicine, you could benefit from understanding evolutionary theory. And so if there ever was a program that was the epitome of interdisciplinarity, it was what I was proposing, which was consistent with the mission statement of the university. When I tried to then go and sell that idea to each of the different deans of the faculties, what did they become? They became territorial. <laughs> well, I, I'm engineering faculty. I don't want to hear about this. I'm the fine arts. I don't want to hear about this. I'm the so they were actually succumbing to a evolutionary imperative that we know from ethology, <laughs> which is the territor territoriality. So it's you know, so I hate there's a hypocrisy in universities that from this side of the mouth we say one thing and from this side we say, we do the exact opposite. Well, I think yeah, some people may be aware of, you know, we've we tried to build some sort of something like an interdisciplinary exactly. unit with, you know, okay, we want to understand, you know, there's a big set of questions we want to understand. We want to understand free societies and how they work. And there's a million different areas, things you can come from. And those people could talk to and help ooh, that question. Exactly. And, uh, you know, well, first of all, oh, God forbid we think about free societies because that's a horrible thing. Yes. And, you know, oh no, you can't, you know, you're not going to be allowed to hire some historian that the history department doesn't want because we want that exactly. territorial sort of this company. Yeah. And, and so to that point, I, I mentioned it, I think, in one of the two talks I gave here. Uh, in my own career, I've been punished by the gatekeepers for being a staunch interdisciplinarian. Uh, the general position that my colleagues have taken is that I'm scattered. I'm not mm -hmm. focused enough. So had I only done... 1,000 different studies in an incredibly narrow area that's only read by seven other people, that's a good scientist. But if I publish things that are read by 200,000 people, that's scattered and unfocused. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, when we take you out for coffee on the lake, people <laughs> recognize exactly. you and, and you, you, you read, you know, the, the synthesis seems to be what needs is needed to transmit something meaningful and we just seem to be building these uh institutional incentives to to make sure we don't say anything either interesting or meaningful to anyone else or relevant or consumable yeah. or or you know it's just it's now i think that uh not to get too psychoanalytic but i think that there's an ego defensive element here which is uh if you are a professor you'd love to be able to appear on a popular show that might reach 15 million people. Joe Rogan, for, Joe example. Rogan, for example. Or my podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I've only been trained in writing peer-reviewed papers, so I've mastered that form. And in the deep recess of my mind, I'm envious of those who can go on a popular show and be alluring and exciting and, uh, you know, entice people to study different things. But I know I can't do it, so the easiest thing for me to deal with that is to then denigrate that which mm -hmm. I'm not good at. So I think academics, by their nature, are typically not some of the most extroverted, you know, party people that you could imagine. <laughs> On some of these shows, you you need yeah, to have a certain yeah. temperament mm -hmm. and personality. Therefore, I'm going to denigrate that which I can't do well. And it's rather sad because if you want to build these networks and do this communication stuff you do need that person sitting in the corner never talking to anyone focused like a laser to get that one piece of yeah. information yeah but it, it seems odd that that's 
the only the thing, only that's thing exactly. we care about. We, we, yeah. we need a portfolio. And it, it, I wonder, does that relate to our susceptibility to the broader set of sort of postmodern idea pathogens? Did we just become so insular and so unconcerned? There's like, oh, I'm doing my little narrow thing. You go do your narrow right. critical theory thing, and I'm not going to worry about Exactly. The fact that that's going to destroy civilization. <laughs> well, because, we, look, I'm not suggesting that specialization or hyper-specialization mm -hmm. is not important. There are certain problems that, I mean, you can't solve Fermat's last theorem uh, because you understand Ayn Rand's books. Absolutely. So, okay, fine. And right. no, nobody is suggesting, but it's, it's, not it's not either or. I can be a specialist, but also be a conciliant broad thinker for right. big, big issues. Right. Because even the specialist should be able to communicate exactly. with the people who are going to form the networks. And, exactly. Uh, and so, and literally my brain operates in this, you know, maybe I'm just lucky that my brain, I'm always looking for nodes to link. I'm always looking for ways by which I can unify all sorts of disparate knowledge under an organizing framework. And, and I understand that, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses, but really important scientific social problems require that kind of mindset. So take, for example, the mapping of the human genome. It wasn't one group of folks who did it. It wasn't geneticists who did it. It, it required bioinformatics people. It required geneticists, it required some mathematicians, it required some biologists. And so it took specialized expertise in many different fields when put together, we now crack the human genome. That's how you solve real problems. So then I, uh, that leads me to, um, things seem to be failing as far as academia and the process of acquiring knowledge. We were going farther every, every day. There's one more email about how, you know, DEI is more important than learning and research and all of that. These institutions seem to be failing. You know, the, the hard sciences are still for now producing knowledge that is useful. Although when you look at what's coming but in they're there, getting they're getting, you know, we had an astronomy professor who had to withdraw a paper because the astronomy paper he wanted to write didn't, there was too much of a risk that it would not elevate marginalized voices and there things you like that. You know, if, if we lose even the hard sciences, we, we, these institutions are almost like, like zombies. What, what can we do? Can we take these back? Do we need to go off and fo form some new institutions that will be parasitic, parasitic resistant, yeah. but all, and also create this opportunity for specialization? What, what do we do? I mean, I'm running right. out of ideas. <laughs> yeah. I tried. <laughs> I tried well, you guys everything doing, I could. Let, but, me, let uh, me go on the record that the Salem Center here and, and the, the folks, you and Carlos and the rest of the gang, are really a an oasis in a sea of darkness. Uh, and so I would uh, encourage everybody to support your center. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm still optimistic that the diseased institutions can be salvaged. But in the worst case scenario, if if you know if the cancer has metastasized to stage four and it's impossible to do anything about it, then it might be exactly the case that you need to set up alternate institutions where people return to the commitment to the scientific method, to reason. I mean, we've already won that battle. There was a thing called the Renaissance. There was a thing called the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. There was a thing called the scientific method, which liberates us from the shackles of our personal identity, right? There is no Lebanese Jewish way of doing evolutionary psychology. There is just evolutionary psychology. There is no studying the distribution of prime numbers from a transgender perspective. Nobody gives a damn that you're transgender. Go for it. You do you. So, but once we're introducing your personal identities into something as beautiful and as epistemologically freeing as the scientific method, then we're dead. It's stage four cancer. You're finished.
get your will ready. So I still, though, have optimism that we're going to be able to turn it around. But I agree with you. I share your pessimism that every day that passes, it's getting worse and worse. And I, you know, I think the the Renaissance is an interesting parallel because what we, you know, if you if you take a traditional view of Western history, which I'll focus on because I don't know anything about Eastern history, um, we did see this. You know, there was the bubbling up of proto-scientific methods in the sort of Greek world, and yeah. it held on a little bit. The Romans were able to do this architecture and things, and then we lost it for a really long time, and it was a sort of gradual recovery of the texts, and almost like a, 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 a spread you know, of the old ideas yeah. back. Is there any chance that we can accelerate that i mean we seem to have thrown it away a lot faster than they did well i mean i can think we, do, is yeah. the technology such that we were going to fail quickly and succeed right. quickly and so so i i think that you're exactly right that in a sense we're returning to dark ages 2.0 and now we have to recover it i think you recover it precisely going back to your early point by academics putting on their shoulders the fact that they can't only be hyper specialized in their lab work that's great. Keep up, keep pumping out those great peer-reviewed papers, but look outside of that to even more important things, which is what allows you to do your hyper-specialized work is that people did once discover the beauty of the scientific method. And if one day you might lose that. So even if you're hyper-specialized, you might not be able to do it because I don't know if the next paper I write might offend someone. So you need to step out of your narrow, selfish, careerist focus, right? And if everybody takes on that mantle, then I think we can redress the situation. You know, maybe it's it's pencils down time. Everybody go, you know, in the basement at the University of Chicago and build the, uh, you know, because you know that was the last you know, yeah. the last time we really needed to do something. Yeah, everybody yeah. just stopped all their research and they went and mm -hmm. they they built the bomb. Maybe we all need to just exactly put right. everything you know until we get to the point where we can preserve this stuff. Well, I mean, let's I think get the human capital exactly. And, and I mean, that. look. You being a professor, a scientist, an academic involves many facets. What What is more uh, laudable than you standing up in the defense of the profession that you chose to pursue, right? So yes, it's important to do the statistical test for your paper and get the p-value and get it published in the Journal of Finance and the Journal of Consumer Research, but there's even a bigger fight, which is you wanna be able to be operating in that profession. And the reality is that today, every and it's not hyperbolic, it really is true that we are losing our, our reflex for the beauty of the scientific method. Every email that I receive from my university is about die. Congratulations to the first Latinx transgender Muslima who is disabled who received the 4.0 on her exam. But what about the guy who just did an incredible thing in the lab? His accomplishments don't matter. Oh yeah, because he's heterosexual white male. It's insane. Okay, now this this to the um, have we elevated failure and being a victim to the point where that has become an actual high status activity at universities yeah, of course and if that's true that i mean that that seems very pathological if we start chasing it's, it's a psychiatric disorder as a matter of fact right so oh. so in chapter five of the parasitic mind i talk about collective munchausen and collective munchausen by proxy let me explain the genesis of this and then i'll apply it to the current context munchausen syndrome and Munchausen syndrome by proxy are psychiatric disorders, which I had actually written a an academic medical paper on it. Munchausen syndrome is when someone feigns 
in illness so that they can garner empathy and sympathy. So I don't really have diabetes, but I faint as though I have diabetes because, oh, poor you, God, you have diabetes. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is even more diabolical. It's when you, when someone is taking care of someone else, your pet, your elderly parent, your biological child, and you harm them willfully so that you can garner the empathy and sympathy by proxy. Oh, poor me, I have a child who's sick. It's truly diabolical. So because I was familiar with these psychiatric conditions, having written a paper on it in 2010, when I started seeing the orgiastic victimhood currency that was proliferating everywhere, certainly on campuses, mm -hmm. if not in greater society, Jesse Smollett, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and, and the rest of them, then that's how I got the idea of coining this kind of collective malady as collective Munchausen and collective Munchausen by proxy, where more important than be achieving things is to be the highest victim. So it's a it's a new game, right? It's it's not who runs the hundred meters fastest; it's the one who never finishes the hundred meters. So it's grotesque, right? Science is about a meritocratic ethos, and yet that is completely. Uh, superseded by who's the greatest victim. It's grotesque. And if we cease to sort of hold up the most successful, you know, you're, you're not going to get this process of cultural evolution where, oh, this these people got over, they did something really good. We should all start exactly. acting like that. If you want, you know, if, we, if we start saying- You don't imitate the, you know, the successful one, right. you the imitate status, the victims. Status comes from the people who are, you know, you know success is evidence of being an oppressor Failure is evidence of being the oppressed. We must elevate the oppressed. Now, if everyone starts imitating the things that cause people to be oppressed, and oppressed is just right. unsuccessful, uh, this seems like the sort of thing that could unravel a civilization. It, it, it really can. Uh, it really can. So I, I, I try to kind of uh, encourage people about not being victims by using my genuine story of victimhood, not mm -hmm. manufactured, not faux victimhood, for your listeners and viewers in the thousands and thousands who are listening and watching this. Uh, I, I come from Lebanon, we're Lebanese Jews. We had to escape Lebanon during the brutality of the Lebanese civil war because it wasn't very uh, wise to be Jewish at that point. So I've gone through you know the highest apex of victimhood, but yet the way that I present myself to the world and the way that I interact within myself is that I've overcome my victimhood. My victimhood is part of my story and I'm happy to share it so that people can learn from it and know about it, but it doesn't define me. Rather, I'm proud that I've been able to do things despite those obstacles. So yes, we've all potentially have had difficult stories, but we don't wallow in it. We don't use it as the currency to get the gold medal. We, we agree to, I mean, we acknowledge it and we overcome it, right? Think about it when you go see a therapist and you, you've got some trauma, does the therapist tell you, please wallow in that trauma forevermore and use it as currency to advance? N no, if you're doing individual therapy, but on the collective, it's the opposite that we say. You know, something happened to your peoples 300 years ago that has nothing to do with anyone who is alive today, even their ancestors are irrelevant, but wallow in that. My, my, so my wife, her ancestors come from the Armenian genocide. They, and this is only 100 years ago. This is not 400 years ago. Then her grandparents moved to Lebanon. Her parents were born in Lebanon. And then they had to also escape, just like my family from Lebanon. So this is happening within our lifetime, the victimhood. And yet, here we are at beautiful UT Austin. We've succeeded. We've overcome our victimhood. Don't be a victim.
and it's interesting you you were, you were both victimized by exactly the society that seems to have most taken the sort of tribal exactly. splitting up. You, know, you take this tiny little country and you split it into as many like fine distinctions as possible and then pit everyone. And I, you know, it must be terrifying to see, oh, oh no, you know, nobody used to identify themselves that way exactly. here that much. And now, you know, the, the active process of trying to encourage people to like, you know, create that sort of structure because it didn't, you know, for those of you who don't know, it didn't work out for Lebanon. It, it was not just work out. <laughs> Professor Sad who ran into some trouble there. It was a it, look. It was an I, the reason why tragedy exactly the reason why in chapter one of the Persic Mind I tell that story is because I want to give the epitome of what a society ends up mm -hmm. if it is organized along the purest form of identity politics, right? And, and a successful like Lebanon right. was a right a gem in the area exactly before this process. Exactly. And but then you 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 trigger the tribalism and off we go in the butchering right and then we see it in rwanda and we see it in iraq and we see it in the balkans and we see it in syria so what is beautiful about the united states is that you're supposed to band around a set of foundational ideals. Mm -hmm. So yes, I could come from the Ukraine or Lebanon, but now these are superseded by the fact that we all love the constitution, the bill right. of rights and so on. Remarkable that we were able to build a culture it's around unbelievable. It's a miracle. Some sheets of paper, as opposed to like ancient blood hatreds. And uh, you're just and throwing and it away. And it worked so well. For and 200 and something like, oh, years. Oh no, no, that, uh, but, and, and let's it, get rid of what worked and let's use the model of Lebanon that resulted in yeah. hundreds of thousands of deaths. Is this ignorance of what the implications are or is this enthusiasm for... A, I think regrettably it's because the tribalism caters to an evolutionary mechanism mm -hmm. of coalitional thinking, right? We view the world in, in uh, dichromatic ways. There's blue team and red mm. team. I'm in the red team. Your blue team, you suck. There's actually, I, I can't remember the reference for this study, but I remember hearing it in an advanced social psychology course when I was a doctoral student. If you're to bring in people into the lab and then you put a marker of red or blue on you know, different participants who come in, just a random allocation, and then you say, oh, you guys can sit around here and sort amongst yourself, and in a few minutes, I'm going to come back for part two. Mm -hmm. And the point, really, of the study is to see how do people start interacting with each other, and they start coalescing mm -hmm. along this incredibly irrelevant queue of red and blue. So now it's no longer it's no longer relevant whether I'm gay or straight, whether I'm transgender or uh, cis-normative, or whether I'm tall or short or black or white. What matters now is this completely mm -hmm. irrelevant queue that was introduced by the experimenter that shows something incredibly powerful we're tribal and so that goes to you know maybe the breakdown is less about these parasitic ideas and about the failure to maintain whatever it was that was keeping us together that right like we yeah. had some something that was protecting us from that and we lost right. that so maybe we you know we, we may have to step back one more and figure out how to how to rebuild that amen maybe yeah well i guess uh on that note uh thank you very much for joining us this has been thank you so much a great deal of fun and uh we'll see you next time and Cheers, do everybody. check uh uh the salem center's uh youtube page for both of dr said's talks they're both fascinating and even the academic one is very accessible so i highly recommend both of them cheers thank you so much thank you